If you would, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We've been doing a mini-series, this being the third, on the life of Joseph and Joseph's character of many colors. We'll begin in chapter 40 of Genesis to discuss some more principles about this amazing man's life. And what's more, we'll, through this life of Joseph, tell you about his amazing God. As you may have remembered from last time, we've thus far picked up four principles about Joseph's character, which showed his great God. Number one, he worshipped the source of true prosperity. Number two, he withstood temptation with divine accountability. Number three, he witnessed persecution for his strong integrity. And number four, he worked with full responsibility. For this morning's message, I want to cover two more. Namely, he watched the unfolding of God's sovereignty and he walked in complete humility. He watched the unfolding of God's sovereignty and he watched, excuse me, he walked in complete humility. If you remember from last time, in chapter 40, we find that Joseph has been accused wrongly of sin. He's been imprisoned, according to the last part of chapter 39. And the Lord was blessing him. The Lord was with him. But I want you to notice the first phrase of chapter 40. And it says, sometime after this. I want you to think about that phrase with me for a moment. Because while it may just seem like a transitionary phrase by a narrator or editor or writer of this portion of God's Word, and as though it may slip our minds completely... But I see in that phrase and several others in the ensuing verses and chapters a marvelous affirmation that Joseph is watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty. Because if you were to put yourself in Joseph's place, you know that you would have already been accused of being a dreamer by your brothers, they would have already thrown you in a pit, sold you into slavery, that slavery takes you to Egypt, you've attempted to be a righteous man in the midst of an unrighteous society, you're wrongly accused of a rape you didn't commit, and now you've been thrown into a prison, and the narrator of this portion of our Bible's simply says, with almost a throwaway phrase, sometime after this. Now, what would you have thought if you were Joseph? Would you have said to yourself, sometime after this? Lord, I'm languishing in this prison. Don't forget me. Please don't forget me. So what might appear on the surface 
to be a throwaway phrase sometime after this becomes actually an open door into the heart of a man who is watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty. There are a number of other passages which speak to this. And let's find them as we continue to go through this narration of the story. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, here's what we have. We have the equivalent of what we would say is the president. This is the lord or the king of Egypt. This is like our president. And we have in the cupbearer and the baker uh, emblematic of two of his cabinet members. And these would have been, my friends, very important cabinet members. In fact, so important that these men were in charge of, in a sense, protecting the life of the king, the president of that country. Because the cupbearer would have been in charge of everything that the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, would have drank. And the baker would have been been in charge of everything that he would have eaten. And so these are two very important positions with regard to the actual saving and perpetuation of the monarchy of the kingship of that country. That's how important these men are. And apparently, we don't know what, we don't know how, but there is an offense that was committed against the king, or at least from his vantage point, an offense committed by these two men. And as a result, through his anger and through his punishment, the king says, you shall go to prison for that action. In fact, verse 2 says, And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. That's not Potiphar. That's somebody else. In the prison where Joseph was confined. Now let me ask you, do you believe in coincidences? Do you believe in luck? Blind fate? Chance? There is absolutely none of that, nor should there be, in the Christian's vocabulary. I'm on a crusade, and you should be too, to eliminate the phrase when we say goodbye to one another, good luck. In fact, just the other day, my daughter Alexa, when she was was being dropped off by me for her 7 a.m. basketball practice, and just as she was shutting the door, she said, good providence, Father. I said, that's good. That's good. Because there is no such thing. God is in charge of it all. He's in sovereign control of everything. And don't you know that the very prison, for surely there would have been others, and maybe this is actually even the dungeon of the palace that Joseph himself has been taken to, and that the Lord is in charge of putting the two officials who have given an offense against their king to the very care of Joseph himself. Notice what it says. Verse 4, The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. That has sovereignty written all over it. And one night they both dreamed. And I should say, by the way, 
before we get into this particular portion of the narrative, that apart from our day, when the canon of Scripture is now closed, and God does not, in the dream sequence of a man's life, have a dream and have its interpretation and have God visit a person in a dream to express His will, that's a bygone day. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We don't have that anymore. But they did have it in this day before the Scripture was fully canonized, recognized. And one night, both the chief cupbearer and the chief baker had a dream, separate of course, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were, that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And because Joseph is watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty, and because he knows sovereignty when he sees it, and when he's resting in the very sovereignty of God, in confining him to the very prison house in which these two officers are are also being held, he says this, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now don't miss that. What he's doing is he's describing that all power to know God's will is reserved in God alone. It's God. That's not just Joseph giving some perfunctory phrase. This is Joseph at his heart level saying this, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Do not interpretations belong to God? In other words, and we'll find out more later, I don't have it within myself. It's not in my capacity, but it is in God's. And if He wills, He'll give me the opportunity to help you. What a perspective. What an what a affirmation of the very visualizing, the watching of the unfolding of God's sovereignty. Joseph isn't omniscient. He doesn't know what's going to happen here. He doesn't know that if God is pleased to give him an interpretation for both these dreams, that God may very well, through that process, release him from the prison and allow him to go from being a pauper to a prince, from a pit to the palace. He's trusting God. And in the here and now, he doesn't know what God's going to do. So step by step, little by little, even when you're languishing in a prison for something that you didn't do, God is sovereign. He must have repeated that to himself time after time after time. God, I believe in you. I believe you're sovereign, but I can't see it. I want to trust you and I want to watch the unfolding of it because I believe you're sovereign. In other words, I want to live by faith. So, verse 9, the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. Trusting God. God's giving it to him. The three branches are three days. 
In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Don't miss that phrase, lift up your head. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. In other words, you, you did create, at least to some degree, some kind of offense. And maybe it was actual, not just the, the Pharaoh's own whims and wishes. Maybe it was actual. And he was punished for it. He was languishing himself in the prison. We don't know how long. And now... Because he's away from all of the magicians and so-called wise men of Egypt who would have, might have been able to tell him the interpretation of the dream like they may have been doing before throughout all Egypt, whether it was right or wrong, of course. And I'm sure those magicians, when they gave an interpretation, sometimes it was right and sometimes it was wrong. Just like that clock that doesn't run, it's still right twice a day. They may have stumbled across the right interpretation every now and then, but they weren't foolproof. But they weren't even around. They're not in prison. They're languishing there. And here comes this Hebrew boy. Amazing. And he says, it's not in me, these interpretations that I'm going to give you, but it is in God, Yahweh God. And you don't serve him, but I do. What do you think this might have done to engender in them that Yahweh is God? You see? And so... Joseph said to them, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only, now this is, this is human responsibility. This is not just throwing something into divine sovereignty and saying, well, I'll just continue to languish here and won't say a word. Human responsibility suggests... That if I give the interpretation, I could also say, and it wouldn't be against God's plan or His will, or it wouldn't be hedging against His sovereignty at all, because we don't know the plan. And so humanly, in a responsible way, we simply say, as Joseph does here, only remember me. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention to me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, some house, Verse 15, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the what? The pit. It's not a, not a palatial palace. It's not even a house in that sense, although it has four walls and a roof. It's a pit. It's a prison. It's a dungeon. You don't have freedom there. You can't just go as you please. And he says in his human responsibility, God has given you the interpretation. And I'm sure he was saying in his heart, God, will you remember me as well? But it's not wrong to say on a human level, and Mr. Cupbearer, will you remember me too? It's not wrong. Not wrong at all. But who has the answer to whether or not they'll remember? God. God. Verse 16. When a chief bearer saw that the interpretation was favorable, and I'm sure he would, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cakes, cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, just like the other one. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, just like the other one. But he'll lift up his head from you. Now, we don't know exactly from the Hebrew exactly what that means. But it could mean he'll lift up your head, all right. Decapitation. Because you know what happens? You're going to hang on a tree. 
and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now, my friends, that is the sovereign will of God. Do you see it portrayed in two men? Two men with an offense. Maybe they committed the offense together. Maybe they did it separately. Maybe they are languishing in the prison separately for their separate offenses. We don't know, but we do know this. God has sovereignly said, one I'll free, even though he's committed an offense against me, and one I'll judge eternally for committing a sin against me. Do you know that that is a beautiful picture of divine election? Both have committed an offense. Both are worthy of death. Both should not live. Both should die. Both should be judged. It is right and righteous for the king of Egypt to mete out his punishment on both of them. But he says, I'll save but one. And he's sovereignly, righteously doing so. That's the analogy. That's our God. Someone's going to say, yeah, but, it, but it's not fair. Shouldn't both of them have the opportunity to be saved? Throw them a lifeline. Give them an opportunity to be saved. And if one of them says yes, and one of them says no, then by all means, judge the one that says no. That's more fair. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Both of them deserve to die. Both of them are in the prison. Both of them should be executed. High treason. Maybe the cupbearer was the one who slipped a little poison and just before Pharaoh drank it, somebody says, wait a minute, let's test it again. And then maybe they brought in a slave and maybe he took some sips of that cup and he died on the spot. Maybe that was the offense. High treason against the king. Maybe the chief baker baked a little poison in the bread. And maybe just before the king eats of it, someone says, wait a minute, let's test it again. And it had poison in it. They deserve to die. And the sovereign will of the Pharaoh, I'll release one of them. The sovereign will of the Pharaoh, one of them will receive exactly what he deserves. Now let me ask you about your Christian life. You know what we call that? The one who survives, the one who lives, the one who is saved, the one who's delivered. My friends, we call it grace. God's unadulterated, unmitigated, unmatched, sovereign grace. You say, how could it be so? How would God in His sovereign pleasure, choose to save, deliver anyone if everyone is guilty. That's why we call it grace. And that's why God is to be exalted. Because if any of us receive such grace, it's not because of anything I did. I was a rebel. I was a lawbreaker. I committed all of those offenses and more high treason against the King of Heaven. And God says, nevertheless, I will release you from your unpayable debt. And not only 
will I spare your life. I'll even, at the expense of my own son, grant you a forever heaven with me. That, my friends, is magnanimous grace. And it's the sovereign will of God to do so. And if you don't agree with that, and if you don't believe that's fair, I quote to you the Apostle Paul, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the potter, will the, will the clay say to the potter, Why have you made me this way? God is sovereignly deciding, and we exalt His decisions, whatever they are. Now, I mentioned to you last time that this matter of God's sovereignty and what God chooses to do in whatever way He chooses to do it is something for us to watch, just like Joseph, to visualize the watching, the unfolding of His sovereignty. I told you last time that my daughter Lindsay tore her ACL and her MCL and it was so sweet just this week and I've worn it in honor of her. All of the team bought a wristband and they had number five, her number, put on it. I told her I'd wear it in the pulpit today because I stand in solidarity with them in support of her. And when we have that kind of solidarity, what we're really saying is, I'm playing for the Lord on a vertical level, and I'm playing for those around me in solidarity of the community for a fallen comrade. Because we, together, as a group, are watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty. Because every ligament is controlled by a sovereign God. And I didn't tell you last time, and I should have, that when Lucas, who had broken his foot, and that too by the sovereignty of God, was taking his crutches to that game in which we didn't know, but like Joseph, assumed that we were walking by faith. And when in the first two minutes of the game, Lindsay goes down, I have to go over to Lucas and say, Son, I'm sorry, but I've got to take your crutches now. (laughs) Who knew? And no sooner had those things occurred than on Wednesday night last... I conducted our men's Bible study and went out a little early to say, I want to go see my son Logan's basketball game at UALR. And we watched the game. They won, by the way. 108 to 58. You know how all those early games are, mostly a blowout. And after the game, I went home and I was talking to my wife, my two daughters, and a friend in their bedroom. And I received a call from my son and he said, Dad! As soon as he said that, I knew something was wrong. I said, what, son? He said, I've just been robbed at gunpoint. And I said, what? I'll be there as soon as I can. He told me he was at his apartment. And I said, call 911. Call the head coach. I'm there, son. My wife burst into tears. I ran out of the house as fast as I could. And I showed up at the very apartment complex that he and the other players have a contractual set of apartments from the university and I parked right next to his car and I ran to him and he borrowed someone's phone because his phone was stolen and he told me, Dad, I was in the car and I got out of the car and I had a box of pizza after the game and all the players went to to go get pizza and I was like the second in line and 
My my other teammates went into their apartment and I went into mine and my roommate was having dinner with his parents. And so he was away from us. And I just got out of the car and I was about to get my pizza and a man walked by me and I said, hey, what's up? And he said, everything. Give me your money. And he stuck a gun right in my chest. And he said, I don't have any money. I said, that's right. You're a Quinn. (laughs) He said, dude, I don't have any money. And they said, give me everything. And through some invectives and some expletives, they were trying to pressure him. And there were two of them. And one had a gun continually to his chest and they were getting frustrated. And he said, take my car. And they said, we don't want your car. He said, well, then take my pizza. (laughs) So they took his pizza and they took his cell phone. And they said, don't say a word. And then they ran away. And when I embraced my son with tears in his eyes, he said, Dad, I thought I was going to die. And you may not think that at that moment it's a teachable moment, but I do because I'm both a pastor and a dad. And I said, Logan, are you ready to die? And he said, yes, sir, I am. And I said, I have confidence that you do, son. And I embraced him. God sovereignly, sovereignly, prevented a trigger from being pulled. That's a sovereign God. And if, in fact, He's ready to die, even a sovereign God who allows the trigger to be pulled, and that could happen, He's immediately ushered into the presence of His Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to spend eternity forever with the Lord. We have it both ways. Now, do we want Him here? Of course. You bet I do. But do you know? Do you have the confidence, my beloved friends? Do you have the confidence that if a gun was put to your chest, that you'd be ready to die? And would you say to yourself at that very moment, I'm watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty in my life. And He's my Lord and Savior. And I'm ready to die. And even though I know that being ready to die presupposes that with the Lord I've created an offense against Him for which if I die and go to heaven, I'm so wholly undeserving. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Your grace. This is Joseph's life. This is, this is watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty. Verse 20 of Genesis 40 says, On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, not to lop it off, but to exalt him. And the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now watch the unfolding of God's sovereignty now because in a moment you're going to say to yourself regarding this story and everyone lived happily ever after. What's the next verse say? Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. I I can't tell you the emotions that are welling up within me when I read those words off the page. I mean, on a human level, 
Wouldn't you say to yourself, I indict you, God. You said you would not forget me. I'm languishing here. I'm doing your will. Why? I'm in a pit. Help me. You said you would. Heavenly Father, Jesus said, languishing in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if this cup could pass from me, please. Not because He didn't want to go to the cross. The writer to Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before Him. Do you know why He didn't want to go to the cross? Because for even a momentary instant in time, because of the judgment of the Father upon Him, He would be out of that intimate fellowship and communion with His heavenly Father, even for an instantaneous moment of time, and He didn't want that fellowship to be broken. Father, if there's any other way, I love You. And I want this eternal fellowship with You that we've enjoyed. Please let this this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. Do you know that Joseph is a type? He's saying, Lord, if it's Your will that I be remembered, please remember me. And what was the Lord's will at that moment, at that instant? To cause the cupbearer to forget him for more time. Now you and I don't like that. We don't like that at all. But we live in the watching of the unfolding of God's sovereignty while we obey and wait. Look at the next phrase of the first verse of the next chapter. This narrator isn't, again, giving us a throwaway phrase. Notice it right after, yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Remember this, after two whole years. Now, do you know why the narrator is saying what he's saying? What's he doing? He's, he's ramping up the idea of sovereignty. He's ramping up the idea of, for Joseph, in the narrative, for your life and for mine, it may be another two whole years. Can you live with it? Can you sustain it? Can you trust Him for it? Two whole years? You mean that lousy cupbearer forgot me and it's now been two more whole years? Might you be tempted to be a little bitter at the cupbearer? Might you be a little bit anxious, yea, even sinfully so, that God isn't conforming to your plan or mine? Well, after two whole years of more trusting and more watching in the unfolding of God's sovereignty, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold... 
After them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. That's God's sovereignty. He didn't forget Joseph. He's just working on his time, which is his time, which is the best time, which is the right time. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. In other words, I remember what I did to you before for which I was delivered. And when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. You know what he's saying? The chief cupbearer, when he watches Pharaoh and when he hears that Pharaoh is saying... Hey, wait a minute. I'm having dreams. And here's one and here's the other. It clicked in the mind of the chief cupbearer by God's sovereignty, no less. Hey, I remember when I had the same dilemma. And there was a Hebrew boy. And when that Hebrew boy interpreted that dream aright and I was released, I remembered him. But was it just the chief cupbearer remembering? Of course not. It was God. It was God. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, verse 14. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And here's our other point. Here's the next one. He walked in complete humility. Because what did Joseph say? He answered Pharaoh, and what does he say? What does the text say? It is not what? In me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You know what he was doing? He was witnessing to the person of Yahweh. This was a witnessing opportunity. This was an evangelistic time. And he's saying, look, I don't have it within myself. I'm humble enough to acknowledge to you, you who serve all the pagan gods of your world, that my one God, Yahweh, is the one who allows me to do anything in life, including interpret any dreams. That's humility, my friends. That is walking in complete humility. And so, verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile... Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. And then this walking in complete humility again, watching the unfolding of God's sovereignty, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. You see it again? God is revealed. 
The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh, yes, what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. Sovereignty. And I'm humbly telling you about it. God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Now, he wasn't hedging his bets there. He wasn't saying, oh, and by the way, choose me. He's walking in complete humility. And he was just saying objectively so. Select a discerning and wise man. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming. And store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So that the land may not perish through the famine. I don't believe Joseph was saying, oh, and by the way, I'm your man. He's a Hebrew boy. This is the land of Egypt. He's in a foreign land. Nobody's going to choose him. Nobody's going to say, ah, I'll choose you to be second in command over all Egypt. But notice the unfolding of God's sovereignty through the walking of Joseph in his humility. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God or God's? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, he got it. He got the picture. Lesson complete. There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Isn't that interesting? Pharaoh said, you have charge of the whole house. There's only one thing you don't have, and that's my wife. Now, Pharaoh says, you're in charge of the whole land. The only thing you don't have is my throne. And then, interestingly, you remember his coat, his coat, multicolored coat, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. There his coat is arrayed again for us on the pages of Scripture. And he put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went over the land of, out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And I would say from age 17 to age 30, this man has lived most others' lifetimes. Wow! And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Manasseh, forgetfulness or forgetting. 
Do you know that that's a wonderful testimony of the sovereign hand of God? Could you say that? Could you live your life in such a way that someone might say, are you willing to trust God for two more whole years under this trial? And when you go through it, and God exalts you because of your humiliation, you would say, I'm going to name my boy Manasseh because I've forgotten all my troubles. And... The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So you know how you affirm the sovereignty of God? Name your kids forgetting and fruitfulness. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Credible, mind-altering truth. Do you watch the unfolding of God's sovereignty in your life like that? Do you walk in complete humility, trusting that a sovereign God is in charge and not you yourself? Boy, these are tremendous characters, character qualities of many colors in Joseph's life. Is it true of you? Oh, I trust that it is. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, may we watch the unfolding of your sovereignty in ways that we could never imagine. Trusting you as a result. So that while we're walking in complete humility, you will exalt us at the proper time. May it be so. For your glory and for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.